hppodcraft.com. In the past, when I toured in France, invariably, I made a point of never failing to stop at a certain tavern, about 30 miles from Paris. I will not give you more definite directions for reaching it, for it was a discovery of my own, and as such, I would share it with no one. The fact that the inn has very pretty serving maids is but incidental, the real reason of my visits being the superlative excellence of the wine. Many a night have I and the old Pierre sat, smoked, and drunk until the wee hours of the morning, and many have been the experiences we have exchanged, of wild, eerie adventure in various parts of the globe. Pierre also was a great traveler and seeker after adventure, before he drifted into the backwater of this placid village to finish there the remainder of his days. Aru, ladies and gentlemen, Aru. That was the opening of Aru, Werewolf of Ponker by H. <laughs> Warner Munn. Yes, and these are the werewolves of weird tales here on Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lanky. Thank you for joining us here on HPPodcraft.com and, of course, Patreon. This is our free show for the month of February. And, of course, we are still the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. What could be more Lovecrafting than being two things at once? We are the rat with the human face of podcasts. <laughs> That's what they say. I'm glad you mentioned hybrid animals, actually, because the audience may not be aware but we are doing werewolves this month, as we have in the past. We've moved the month around, but we were feeling werewolfy right now, so we went for the original February slot. And here I have to give credit to an article I read in uh, Dark World's Quarterly called Werewolves of Weird Tales, 1923 to 1935, authored by G.W. Thomas, which does exactly as promised in the headline. How often does that happen on the internet? It lists some werewolf stories, and I checked them all out over the holidays because werewolves and winter pair Excellently. Just like this podcast and our reader, by the way. The amazing Levi Nunez. Yes. He is not just reading Rad Werewolf stuff. He is also making Dungeons and Dragons inspired music. Check out Loot the Body's newest release, Hex Volume 2. It's got six amazing psychedelic songs, including, but not limited to, In Search of the Unknown, The Sunless Citadel. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. The Infamous Isle of Dread and Red Hand of Doom, which also... He just released a video for Red Hand of Doom. New video is on YouTube. So go to the Loot the Body YouTube page and check out all of the amazing videos. There's so many. They're so good. It's so yeah. good for you. So just do it. Do it. It's critical rock and roll. Check it out. Thank you, Levi, for reading on the show. So I, I was looking at this Dark Worlds article. It says, Weird Tales started publishing in 1923, and there was a werewolf story right away by Seabury Quinn in October of that year mm-hmm. called The Phantom Farmhouse. He contributed a lot of werewolf stories to Weird Tales over the years, and we're actually going to do one of his next. Next up, we're doing the Seabury Quinn story, The Bloodflower. Weird Tales editor Farnsworth Wright did not deluge the magazine with hairy men right off the mark. Uh-oh. <laughs> too bad. This wasn't spicy Weird Tales, after all. No, this was just straight up Weird Tales. 1923 featured only one werewolf story, which I just mentioned, The Phantom Farmhouse. 1924 came and went with only the Lovecraft rewrite, The Ghost Eater, with C.M. Eddy Jr. Of course, I believe that was a ghost of a werewolf story, if I'm remembering correctly. You are remembering correctly, and if you would like to verify it, you can check out our bonus episode from August of 2019, where we covered it live in Providence. Nice plug. Now, the floodgates opened in 1925 with Weird Tales top writers doing werewolf stories, Robert E. Howard and H. Warner Munn. Each of these would do something of note. Howard would write the first story with a werewolf that was a man with a wolf's head. Yes, that story is 
Wolf's Ed. <laughs> and we covered it back in episode 307. Yeah, we did that one a while ago. The article says, Famously, Munn took a suggestion from one of Lovecraft's letters. Why doesn't somebody tell the story from the werewolf's point of view? And he ran with it. And that's what we're going to read today and next week. And it led to a series of werewolf stories, actually, around this village of Ponkers. But this suggestion that's famously suggested by Lovecraft wasn't famous to me, so I looked it up. Uh, and it actually comes from a letter of Lovecraft's that was published in the Erie, which is the letter section of Weird Tales. Huh. It was published in 1924. I also found a wonderful article about this called uh, The Coincidental Friendship of H. Warner Munn and H.P. Lovecraft. Hmm. It's by an author named Todd B. Vick on his blog on an Underwood number five. I will link out to it. It's a great read. Quoting this piece. In the Erie of the March 1924 issue of Weird Tales, H.P. Lovecraft wrote, Popular authors do not and apparently cannot appreciate the fact that true art is obtainable only by rejecting normality and conventionality in toto and approaching a theme purged utterly of any usual or preconceived point of view. So it's almost like he's reacting to the pulp stories we covered last month Yeah, uh, when he writes that. And he goes on to say, wild and different, quote unquote, as they may consider their quasi weird products, it remains a fact that the bizarrery is on the surface alone and that basically they reiterate the same old conventional values and motives and perspectives. Sure. Good and evil, teleological illusion, sugary sentiment, anthropocentric psychology, the usual superficial stock trade, and all shot through with the eternal and inescapable commonplace. Hmm. Take a werewolf story, for instance. Whoever wrote one from the point of view of the wolf and sympathizing strongly with the devil to whom he has sold himself. Hmm. So the last bit about the devil, that's not mentioned when folks paraphrase this bit. It's not just sympathy for the werewolf, it's sympathy for the devil that was important to him. And and that might be the bit that H. Warner Munn missed as well. I'm not sure. We could talk about that at the very end. Yeah. Now, Harold Warner Munn was born in 1903 in Athol, Massachusetts. He was an early contributor to Weird Tales. This was actually his first story and it was published in July 1925. Quoting from the Vic article, Munn was 22 at the oh, time. God. Up to that point, he'd only had a few poems published, but no fiction, which means his first time at the proverbial home plate of short fiction resulted in a cover story. Home run. <laughs> yeah. And man, this is a pretty dynamite story, and it's structured like a movie. Like, it, yeah. you can feel the beats. Everything's very cinematic. I can see it all in my mind's eye. It's it's really great. I wasn't kidding when I said these werewolf stories are all fantastic. I was so ready for some duds after the pulps from last oh, time, yeah. but uh, Farnsworth kept the quality up in here. Munn wrote an article about Lovecraft in the 70s himself, and in it he, he wrote, Thinking about the first person idea tendered in Weird Tales, a tale formulated. I wrote it down, sending it to Weird Tales editor Farnsworth Wright, and he bought it for the usual price of a penny a word. I got a check for $65. Bingo! <laughs> I was now a writer. And as a result of the tale, I received a congratulatory note from the man who had written the letter suggesting my story. So Lovecraft actually let him know that he liked it. Yeah. Shortly after Munn's story published in Weird Tales, Munn showed W. Paul Cook the note he received from Lovecraft. Cook was a close friend of his. Because of Cook's associations in amateur journalism at the time, he was also a friend of Lovecraft's. So Cook asked Munn if he'd like to meet Lovecraft, an offer Munn quickly accepted. Munn traveled with Cook from Athol to Providence, Rhode Island to visit Lovecraft. This trip took place almost two years after Lovecraft's congratulatory note in the summer of 1927. And Lovecraft detailed the visit to Clark Ashton Smith, our old pal, in an August 2nd 1927 letter in which he writes, My other guests were very welcome too, Morton, Long, and his parents, Cook, and Munn. Munn is a very promising youth of the blonde, muscular type. He will probably <laughs> develop into a romancer rather than a fantasist and thus have a better chance of professional success. So there you go. 
I didn't know that's how uh, Lovecraft categorized uh, other writers. Yeah, he's blonde and muscular. He's like a casting director, kind of. (laughs) When he says a romancer, does he mean a writer of romance? I think he means he's going to do well with the romantic uh, type of writing that is actually more commercially successful than what Mm -hmm. Lovecraft was trying to do. Uh, He's basically saying he's going to have a better chance of getting paid than I ever will. Sure. Which is both high and low praise from Lovecraft. It's a little shady. (laughs) Munn did a sequel to the story called The Werewolf's Daughter, which was in Weird Tales, October 1928. The two were combined into one book that came out in 1958. There were some more stories after that in a series called Tales of the Werewolf Clan. Munn was also known for his Merlin saga, which started out also in Weird Tales. It's said to have kind of a Robert E. Howard vibe to it. It's about the last days of King Arthur. Merlin and a Roman centurion travel to the West and go to the kingdom of the Aztecs. Oh, man, that sounds so cool. That's crazy. I'm and very... he's a good writer, too. So I think there's a lot of that. And, and it's just Merlin. It's, I think there might some Atlanta stuff might get involved in that yes. again. <laughs> there's a series of books about those. Yeah. Writing was a part-time gig for Munn. He also had various jobs f- from being a sawmill operator to an ice cream salesman. Which I'm sure led to some hilarious mix-ups. <laughs> mm. He had a bad injury. Losing his kneecap, got into full-time writing in 1965. He did a few Merlin novels and a historical novel called The Lost Legion. Good luck developing into a romancer without a kneecap. (laughs) Lovecraft's hopes were dashed. In the late 70s, his werewolf clan books got picked up again and collected into a two-volume collection, which had eight stories in total. He died in 1981 at the age of 77. There are some more interesting details in the relationship between Munn and Lovecraft. It wasn't always friendly. uh, And I think it has something to do with that second part of the suggestion, that sympathy for the devil part. Mm. This story was presented on the cover of Weird Tales, as we've mentioned, with a bearded fella in a red coat holding onto his horse-drawn sleigh, the horse kicking wildly, whipping at a ravenous pack of wolves. It's awesome. It reads The Werewolf of Ponkert, a complete novelette. And since it is a novelette, it is longer, we're going to be splitting it into these two parts. I'll talk more about Lovecraft's relationship on our second episode, but I'll tell you that in letters, Lovecraft began referring to Munn as the werewolf, which is funny. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. I'd like that nickname. I mean, it also suggests that somebody might have come across this letter at some point and thought, oh my God, Lovecraft was friends with a werewolf. (laughs) And then started figuring it out and went, there goes my comic book premise, you know, cancel the Kickstarter. (laughs) This isn't going to get off the ground. Yeah. Now this story begins with a prologue. Our narrator has a little pub that he liked to go to a few miles outside of Paris. He had a drinking buddy called Pierre that he always had a really good time with. One night, Pierre got to drinking a lot, and he hinted at some dark past within his family. And this got the narrator intrigued. So when they were sober, he pressed Pierre about this. Eventually, Pierre shows up one day with this old book. It comprised only four leaves, each a foot square and glued or cemented to a thin wooden backing. They were written on only one side and completely covered with this close, crabbed Latin. It had iron staples with chains coming off of it, as if it had been bolted down to something at one point, meaning that this was very important to somebody or some organization. Yeah, I I love that Munn describes the pub, not specifically, but rather as a place so special that he doesn't want to disclose it. So we can all individually imagine what that might look like. Mm And then this great prop book comes out. It's primitive in its construction, and the chains show that the knowledge is forbidden. So he's really rocking it. 
uh, already yeah. in this story. Pierre translated the book to our narrator, and he was blown away by it. It was originally in Hungarian, then translated into Latin, and then Pierre read the Latin in French. And the narrator is translating it from that modern French that Pierre spoke into English for us. It mm-hmm. says it is probably both garbled and improved. No doubt <laughs> anachronisms abound, but be that as it may, it remains without dispute the only authentic document known of a werewolf's experiences dictated by himself. <gasps> Not to put too fine a point on it for Lovecraft, the audience of Lovecraft. I don't know how he's making this without dispute claim if you had a team of fact checkers. <laughs> but a killer opening, I think, uh, that grips the reader also explains away very cleverly, I thought, this... Uh, little bit here explains why any mistakes he might make with uh-huh, the historical yeah. accuracy. So it's, pretty smart kid. It's crazy to me that this guy was 22 years old when he wrote this story. But let's get into chapter one. The werewolf in question is Vladislaw Brennick, and he's telling the story to a priest, hence the Latin writing, as a warning to others. Having but a few hours in which to live, I dictate that which follows, hoping that someone thereby may be warned by my example and profit by it. He's about to be executed at the beginning of this chapter, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. putting a little clock on it. I mean, it already had a strong hook from the prologue, and then this first chapter, whoop, hooks you right again. Good stuff. Double hooked. It's the old double hook trick. Vladislaw, let's call him Vlad, he was a very smart kid, but he was also lazy, and he grew up in northeastern part of Hungary. His father died in the plague, and his mother died soon after of a broken heart. He was very good at kind of finding the easy way around things. And so he actually became a really good trader. And he found this profession as a wandering salesman and ended up settling in Ponkert. As far as I can tell, Ponkert isn't a real place. No. I'm not even sure what country it's supposed to be in because he says he's from Hungary, but it could be Germany or Romania. It's just that general European universal movie town kind of setting. Yeah. I think it might be Poland, but I'm not sure. I've read somewhere that somebody said that Ponkert might be set in Poland. Oh, Whether really? that's true or not, I don't know. I kept thinking, man, if they'd gone with the werewolf movie in the 30s, Universal, mm-hmm. this would have been a great part for Bela Lugosi if oh. they used this story. Because, you know, he's Hungarian and yeah. actually Bela is in The Wolfman. He's the first werewolf at the beginning, yeah. mm-hmm. let's not forget. Yeah, yeah. So maybe this is his backstory. You know, Maleva <gasps> says that this is her son, that Bela's her son, but I don't know. Oh. He, she could be covering for him and he's actually Vlad. I'm going to pretend that's true. Yeah, why not? He set up a shop and sold silks, jewels, and sword hilts. And he really made bank on the sword hilts. Lots of jewelry encrusting and nobles, they ate it up with a spoon. He paid lots of good money for it. Vlad had a reputation for being fair in his dealings, but also he was a bit of a miser. Oh, they're just haters, Vlad. They call you sucker when you spend it. They call you cheap when you don't. (laughs) Can't please anyone. His house was actually far from Pockert, so he would have a long journey at the end of the day He was worried that he might get robbed or attacked by wolves, but neither of those things actually happened to him. But others had been found dead and robbed and also partially eaten. So maybe a reason to be afraid. (laughs) I would consider maybe moving a little closer to town. Well, you know, he makes the best of it. It says, a man can think much in a 10-mile ride, and it gave an opportunity to clean my mind of the day's worries and bickering, so as to come to my dear wife and little daughter with thoughts of only them. Mm. As a commuter in various jobs, I've It's hard to do that when you're in traffic and driving, but as a train rider or cyclist or walker, I've really been grateful for that time to leave work at work. And it also shows how much he values his family. It's a lot of efficient and very mature stuff coming from this 22-year-old again. Wow, yeah. Another disturbing fact 
about these robbers is that there were bare human footprints at the scenes of the crime. This was in the snow. And these guys were robbing rich people, getting away with a lot of money, and yet not buying any boots. They're just so excited when they get the money, they spend every they spend it all first on on cars and candy and <laughs> It's the last thing on the list. They forget it again. Now, the reason for Vlad's severe anxiety commuting home on the night of this story, it was known that I had a large amount of money in my possession. For that afternoon, the chief of a large Tartar caravan, which was passing through, had stopped at my shop and taken six of my best sword hilts with him, leaving their equivalent in gold. So I had cause enough to worry. Recently been thinking about something like this because I got some first-class train tickets, which I've never done. And I wish there was some kind of flag on that that let them know that you're not rich, that it's just something you're doing nice <laughs> for yourself. Right. Like some hybrid version of first class where you can enjoy being separated from the commoners, but, uh -huh. you know, not have to deal with the rich assholes either. Just some right. kind of because I've been upgraded to first class on a plane before. It just seems like it comes with a customary eye roll from another passenger at some point when I'm excited about the hot towel. Uh -huh. They're so used to it. And there's a little bit of disdain about them coming from the staff, I can tell. So it's like, give me, I, I want you to know, <laughs> this isn't normal for me. There should be a, a middle zone yeah. where people that aren't rich can enjoy some of the benefits occasionally. Put me where the prize winners go. That's, that's go. great for me. Similarly, Vlad is just rich for the night. This doesn't represent his normal income. So for this one night, if you were to stop him, you might think, well, the heck with this rich guy who cares what happens to him. You know, he deserves what he gets. Actually, what does happen to him happens because of that, which, of course, suggests, you know, maybe it's not a good thing to discriminate on any basis. It's mm, just an interesting yeah. angle in the, in the story. So this night, in the cold winter evening, Vlad is on his journey home with all of his gold, and he hears some scary howls that chill him to the very bone. He freezes up, but they make his horses go faster. The howls get closer and closer, so he decides to take the sleigh off the road and onto the frozen river. It's a longer journey, but... If he avoids the wolves, then, you know, that would be worth it. Yeah. Unfortunately, when they get to the riverbed, part of it is unfrozen. The sides of the river have too many trees on them for him to be able to take the, the sleigh onto the river side, so he's going to have to backtrack. Which is going to result in a confrontation. But I, I just want to take a moment here and highlight the... You were talking about the cinematography. I mean, it's oh, right yeah. here. He's on the sleigh, snow falling. He feels the presence of these things through sound. It's, it's a little like the beginning of American Werewolf in London. And then yeah. he does this risky thing to avoid what he can't yet see when he decides, let's go on the river. It's mm -hmm. a straight shot, but it's all ice. And yeah. maybe he'll fall through. And he's got to, the horses have to keep their footing. Uh -huh. It says, little puffs of diamond dust shot from the ice into my lap as the steel shod hooves rang and clicked. And so as they're racing this invisible force, it seems like he's gaining ground. But then he sees why... He is gaining ground and they've fallen off. It's because, boom, the black icy waters. And there's a chuckling sound. They knew this was going to happen to him. So he turns the horses around on the ice. Yeah, and the wolves are there to meet him. Right there. So, you know, in, think of him trying to turn the sleigh. The ice is puffing up and making this diamond kind of cloud. The horses are slipping around. Death waters on one side. Wolves racing toward him. I mean, what are we doing? Let's just go see this movie. It's so great. There are seven wolves, all gray, but one, which is black. He decides the best way to deal with this is just to charge right into him, and he does. The wolves scatter, but two of them attack the horses, and the others attack Vlad from the rear. He pulls out this metal bar that he had under his seat, and he smashes one of the wolves, hearing bones break. This scares them away, and they stand all around Vlad, staring at him and his horses, one of which is wounded. 
Vlad feels like these things are laughing at him. I found myself wondering if Anne Rice read this because there's a similar indoctrination of the hero scene yeah. in uh, The Vampire Lestat. I thought the same thing. It's so quiet on this frozen river that he can hear the black one trying to sneak up behind him. And he swings really hard, but one of the gray wolves jumps in and takes the blow. The blow smashes the wolf in the face. It says, he grunted, choked, a stream of blood shot from his mouth and nostrils. His eyes opened and closed convulsively. Then he collapsed. The bar had crashed halfway through his head. Oof. This has given the beasts some pause and they circle the sleigh. He also notices something strange. All of the gray wolves have leather straps with empty pouches around their necks, but the black one doesn't. Then they all stop and they give this blood-curdling howl. He gets a good look at them. Far from being wolves, as my first thought had been, they were great gray animals, the size of a large hound, except the leader, who was black and more the size and shape of a true wolf. All, however, had the same general appearance and the same characteristics, a high intelligent brow, beneath which gleamed little red pig-like eyes with a glint of a devil in their glance, long and misshapen hindquarters, which caused them to move with a rabbit-like lope when they ran, and most terrifying of all, they were almost hairless and possessed not the slightest rudiment of a tail. Great gray animals, and they have this hyena-like characteristic. I like that it is nonspecific, though. They're just yeah. monsters. Yeah, it gives a little room for mental extrapolation, you know, for your mind's eye to kind of change these things around and make them more interesting and more frightening. The way they're gathered, Vlad can only see four of the six of them at, at any given time, but it's so quiet that he can hear them behind him. So he feels like he's got a good sense of where everything is. He notices the dead body of the thing that he killed. He thinks, oh, that looks kind of weird. What happened to it? I don't understand. But then he notices what it is. The front paw is no longer a paw, but a human hand. Mm. And this realization causes him to scream uncontrollably, and in his freakout, they attack. Now, after that, he doesn't remember really what happened. We flash forward. Somehow, Vlad is home in his bed. He's suffering from a delirium in which he raves about wolves that are not wolves and a black fiend with eyes like embers. Again, Mun thought... You know, I just have one chapter to hook Lovecraft on this. Let's get it all on the table and with the fainting. <laughs> triple hook. Oh, triple hook. Chapter two. After he got better, Vlad went back to the river. But of course, it had thawed when it was over at that point. What happened to his horses in gold? I was wondering. Even those little dice bags around the wolf's necks. That's oh, where that went. There you go. Not the horses, but the gold. No. Yeah, yeah. So one night in bed in the springtime, he hears a distant cry of a wolf. And he's confused about his feelings. He's a little afraid, but he's also a little excited, a little compelled. A strange exhilaration had come over me, like that of a lover who keeps a tryst with his beloved. He goes to the window and feels a call. Without thinking about it too much, he just leaves his house and goes out into the woods. Diehard style, no shoes. Uh, uh, by the way, it only mentions that he's barefoot, so one can assume that the rest is a clanky suit of armor. Yeah. That would make perfect sense. He finds himself in the woods with a shape that comes out and then it stands upright. It is the black wolf that he will eventually call the master, he explains in his narrative. Vlad is somehow compelled to take off his clothes and place them in the hollow of a tree. Long, loud scene of him trying to fit all the pieces of armor in there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, just leave them on the ground. <laughs> After that, the master falls to the ground as a beast, 
But then Vlad also drops to the ground, and he too is a beast! The master had drunk my blood and the old story that I had never quite believed, to the effect that if a vampire drinks one's blood, he or she has the power over that person that nothing can break, and eventually he will also be a vampire, was coming true. So we're getting a blend of this vampire and werewolf legend, which is always there. Yeah. You know, Dracula is a werewolf after all. And this master has a vampire-like power over those he's done blood drunked. <laughs> yes. They race off into the forest and they're joined by five other werewolves. The master says to Vlad, you will join my group of free companions or you will be their next meal. You have a choice, he said. We do not harm the poor, only the rich. Although now and then we take a cow or horse from them, for that is our due. But the rich we slay and their jewels and fine gold are ours. I take none myself. All belongs to my companions. What do you say? Vlad says, no, but then they laugh. Die here and now, or make a promise to obey me unswervingly, to deviate not a jot from my orders, no matter what they may be, and be my willing slave. I will make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. Your people shall wear sables and ermine, and the king himself will be proud to acknowledge you as friend. So this felt like the pitch to me that like some revolutionary leader might make, mm -hmm. you know, first appealing to the Robin Hood aspect. You know, ah, this is yeah. justified somehow, these crimes mm -hmm. we're going to commit. And then, of course, how is it, though, that they become rich? Now they become what they beheld? Yeah. You know, it's uh -huh. clearly a pose. It's, it, it starts as an eat the rich thing to yeah. initiate the cult members. And then once they're in far enough, those ideals disappear because wow. it's too late. It's literally eat the rich. It is literally eat the rich here. Yeah. <laughs> Vlad asks, why me? And the master explains that there must be seven and that... Vlad has slain the last one, so he must take his place. And the number seven is of occult significance. You know, Mary Magdalene had seven demons that flew out of her. According to the Bible, I believe it's one of those more conventional touches, actually, that HPL might not have liked. Vlad thinks about his wife and his baby daughter and how he can't leave them alone with no one to earn for them. And then he thinks about his kind of boring, prosaic life and how he's always yearned for something more fantastic, something more exciting to happen. And... Those two things make him say, yeah. But God, if I had only chosen death. Yeah. So, of course, this isn't really a choice at all anyway. It's so funny that the master says, you have a choice. Yeah. I'll kill you or take this deal. I mean, anybody reasonable is going to take the deal and then try and worm out of it later. The well, fact that he's putting a positive spin on it by saying, you know what? This might be exciting as well. Yeah. Turned into a side hustle. But that's the trick, because if, if he was a good Christian guy, he would have said no and just died. And his soul would have been, you know, gone up to heaven or, or whatever. That's true. But he is going, you know what? I'm I'm going to take a chance here and see if I can make this work. <laughs> this new right. werewolf situation. There you go. That's the, that's the sin, yeah. And he regrets it. Now, he says the things that he saw and did that night were horrible. But eventually the pack split up and he turned back into a human right by where he left his clothes in the tree. I felt prone on the grass, screaming, cursing, and sobbing to think of my fate to come. I was damned forever. Mm. I began to reassemble my suit of armor. <laughs> if only I'd worn shoes! <laughs> no, I was glad we didn't have a long wind-up with the werewolf powers, you know? Just get right into it. Yeah! Not this kind of like, oh, I can smell better than normal stuff. Oh, right, yeah. Oh, what's that? I could, I could hear a, a bird fart from four miles away. Yeah! <laughs> he calls himself a vampire. He's not one. He doesn't think any of the others are, except maybe the master, they all ate human flesh, drank blood, cracked bones open for the marrow. They ate human food when they were 
in man form, but they found it less and less appealing as time went on. They only wanted man flesh. The master definitely only drank blood. He was odd looking in human form, small with eyes that glittered with youth. And I think it also said he had really wrinkled ashen skin. Yeah, he's got that old Nosferatu elder vampire vibe going on, yeah. But he was incredibly aged and Vlad guessed that he might even be immortal. Vlad then says that he's not gonna focus on the following year where he did werewolf stuff and was the master's (laughs) slave. He talks about how on on these hunts they would go, they didn't manage to get a kill every time, but other times they would slaughter lots of people. They got lots of wealth, but the master never took any of this money the whole time. So what was he getting out of this? Hmm. Sometimes they would kill horses and cattle, which they love to do. And he wonders if the people that he's killed become vampires themselves. Just, you know, it's a passing thought, even though there's nothing in the story that implies that they did. Generally, he didn't feel much guilt about murdering the rich. One time they were tracking a wealthy traveler who was with his two young grandkids, which is, why why are you okay with killing little kids? That's pretty nuts. Mm And they found them already slain and robbed by bandits. So the wolf pack tracked the bandits and then they slaughtered them. One of the few specific examples of their murderous rampage, but it shows the hypocrisy because these bandits were just doing what they were doing. Yeah. I guess you could justify it because they killed the kids, but who's to say you wouldn't have done that? So of course they were going to kill the kids. Yeah. They're werewolves. Kids are just snicker bars, the werewolves, like the fun size, you know, (laughs) Halloween treat snicker bars. He says, you know, we were talking about just killing the rich, but guess what? We also killed innocent people. As time went on, they just became more and more evil. He generally didn't feel bad, but sometimes his guilt overcame him. One night, he crept into an empty church and prayed to God for what seemed like hours for salvation, but he got no answer. I cursed and prayed and screamed. For a time, I must have been mad. Finally, I left. At the church door, I bared my head and looked up at the sky across which dark clouds were scudding, obscuring the stars. I rose on tiptoe, shook my fist at the racing clouds, cursed God himself and waited for the lightning stroke. But none came. Only a light rain started to fall, and I arrived home drenched to the skin with a heavier load on my heart than when I left. Yet even then, So mysterious are the ways of an inscrutable providence. My salvation was approaching in a horrible guise. For on that night, I had the thought, which was to result in annihilation for us all. Oh boy, well, that's a good place for us to pause. Next week, we're going to get into the thrilling conclusion of The Werewolf of Ponkert. I want to thank our reader, Levi Nunez. Check out Loot the Body's newest release, Hex, Volume 2, and all the amazing videos that Levi has put together on YouTube. And as for us, we're going to check out of this podcast, but we're going to be back online next week, and we're going to be chatting with you then. Thanks for tuning in, folks. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Also, the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, all here at hppodcraft.com. HP Podcast. 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 Podcast.